What's up guys, welcome to episode 8 of the Dream Chasing 101 podcast. Today we have a very special guest from the medical sector, um, newly qualified uh, doctor. So yeah, Jamie, why don't you just introduce yourself and give everyone a bit of context to who you are and what you do. Cool, so um, my name is Jamie Colletti. So I just qualified as a medical doctor in December of 2019 and I'm currently in my seventh month of internship at um, a public hospital in Soweto, Chris Hani Barra. It's actually the largest hospital in the Southern Hemisphere. And yeah, so that's what I'm up to currently. And Jamie, obviously, um, studying to become a, um, a doctor is quite a, a journey um, that kind of stretches a, a, um, through a vast amount of years. What kind of made you choose this path and, and this career? So, you know, you always hear those stories about the little kids who had those little doctor play toy things and they always knew that they were going to go into medicine. That's totally not my story. I wish it was, but I always thought I would do something artistic. And then it was kind of in grade 11 um, when my friend and I got involved in some community service at a hospital and I was pulled into some procedures in theater. They were doing some pacemaker changes on some um, cardiac patients. And I just came home that day and I said to my mom, this is what I wanna do. I wanna work in the hospital environment. Um, that whole cliche of wanting to help people. I knew that I didn't want to um, sit behind a desk. I wasn't the best at like crunching numbers or maths. So I thought this would be a great way to interact with people on a daily basis. And I also just find the human body so fascinating. And yeah, so I was really drawn to it from that day that I spent in the hospital. And it just kind of grew on me since that day. And yeah, it's never stopped since then. So. And um, before this, before you kind of had that realization, was there something else you had in mind that you thought you would be doing um, as a career? Oh, wow. I like flip-flopped so much. I was interested in law one day and then I was going to be a journalist and um, then I was interested in graphic design. So really anything that was really far from the medical field, um, I didn't even take biology as a subject. So it really wasn't on my agenda at all and yeah it's weird how life can take you somewhere in completely unexpected and I've ended up loving it so much so it's really great that I somehow found my way here. And um, what has your experience been um, studying medicine in South Africa? I mean it's it's been a long journey um, just kind of the challenges you've faced just to give context to someone who might be thinking about pursuing that, um, that or going down their career path. So I think, you know, before I started, I had a lot of people saying to me, you're crazy, don't do it. I mean, even my general practitioner was like, don't do it. Like, it's not, it's not what everyone thinks it is. And that's true, you know, it, it isn't ever what you expect. And if there is anyone who's interested in going into medicine, you'll know you'll have a million different people telling you not to do it and you'll still won't listen to them. And I don't think any one person's experience is the same. I would say the challenges are unexpected. 
you know, it's nothing that you you think it's going to be like. It's very long hours. It's giving up things that the rest of, you know, your friends studying don't have to give up. Like one thing I didn't expect was to, as a student, be on call for public holidays, weekends. You miss all of that. You're expected to miss birthdays. You know, people aren't as lenient as maybe other professions when you want to take time off. Um, It's very strict with when you're allowed to take time off, especially when you're a junior. So I think, yeah, the main challenge with studying is firstly studying for so long. It's like six years. And then also just so much volume to wrap your head around. It's just so much studying, so much hard work, so much persistence. And it's also like a field where a lot of people kind of don't accept fault. So you have a lot of people going into this very stressful environment where people's lives are at stake. And I think mentally that's very, very challenging. I mean, it's probably one of the most stressful um, careers um, out of all of them. What has kind of been your your coping mechanism, you know, to kind of uh, take your mind off the stress that's it's it's a consistent stress um so yeah what have you been doing to kind of ease your mind when you have the time off so I think the best thing is just to be surrounded with supportive people and you know to remember that medicine isn't your whole life because it's very quick to fall into that I mean you become friends with the people who are also studying medicine you go to the hospital all day every day and sometimes on the weekend And then you see when you're even outside of work, you slip into that conversation um, of medical topics and things. So I think to surround yourself with other people and just engage in other topics of conversation helps to de-stress, kind of get out of the moment. I like to read a lot of books. And yeah, you know, the whole thing of exercising and just keeping up your hobbies that you always had before so that this doesn't become like your whole existence. You were speaking about being on call as a student. Um, It's quite different to other careers because, um, for instance, uh, you in other careers you have to maybe take an internship, but you're not doing as much hands-on work. So how has it been um, going through that that part of the journey? Um, Is it quite stressful to have that kind of responsibility as a student? So the great thing about um, the WITS circuit that I, I went through because I studied at WITS was that you're, you're always supported, even as a student. Um, so they're never going to completely leave you alone to, to handle like the resuscitation of a patient as a student. Um, it is a bit daunting to go into those calls. You think, oh gosh, I have to also study and be on call at the same time. But you handle it and everyone goes through it together and people are a bit more understanding and you're not given as much responsibility as a, as a student. But coming now to not being a student and being on the flip side, I realize how actually useful you are as a student to supplement the healthcare system. And often I think you know, when you're in it, you you think, oh, I'm a student, like how valuable am I really? But the medical students are really so helpful when it comes to um, assisting on calls and stuff. They definitely shouldn't underestimate their impact that they're having. So, yeah. So obviously you just uh, qualified as a doctor. 
when did you kind of first hear about um, COVID-19 and when did that kind of become a topic of conversation in the healthcare space? Right. So um, my mom, she's not a doctor. She's not in the healthcare um, system at all, but she likes to keep up to date with these sort of things. And she'd kind of heard in the news, you know, a bit about COVID-19 in China already in um, December, maybe early January 2020. And she was actually the one who brought it to my attention and she's not in the healthcare profession at all. So I heard it from, you know, my home before I even heard about it at um, at work. And um, then it started kind of trickling through in maybe late January, early February, I think when everything started going quite badly in other countries, um, particularly China and Italy, then I think we kind of started to wake up. I mean, in the beginning of things, it was really like, a, oh, you know, people are saying that it's worse than it is and it's something that will go away. And I don't think that we were all entirely prepared for what it would become. You don't want to cause too much panic and alarm too early. So I think people were being cautious with how much um, emphasis they placed on it in the early days. So it was like sort of, you know a topic of conversation on the side of work at the beginning. It wasn't much of a, well, what are we going to do? It was more just like, a, oh, did you hear about this virus that's coming out of China? Like, what do you think of it? Do you think it's serious kind of thing? And then I think only once um, we saw what happened, particularly in, in the European countries that were hard hit in the beginning, did we wake up and say, oh, wow, okay, this is something that we need to take seriously that we can't um, let the same thing happen to us. And that's when people really started talking about it. And I think that was probably around end of March only. That's when it really started becoming like a hot topic of conversation. When, yeah. did, it, when did it kind of get real where it was kind of just a part of that? Because um, like you say, end of March was kind of when I think we had our first case um, mid-March, I think, somewhere around there. Um, when did it get real in your workspace where like, this was becoming a, a topic, um, not, no longer a topic, but more kind of a, a problem? I think, you know, we started making changes at the hospital again towards the end of March. Um, and we started seeing much bigger changes in April when the Level 5 lockdown happened. Um, I think the minute that happened and uh, Sora Ramaphosa announced the, the lockdown, then we started really like thinking, okay, there's stuff that not, has to be done. They s obviously started reconstructing some of the wards because we didn't have wards allocated to COVID. So that needed to be done. And we needed to find a way to also deal with patients who were still coming in with other emergencies and non-COVID related because you can't forget about everything else just because we have COVID now. People are still going to have heart attacks. People are still going to have ruptured appendix. And we needed to kind of limit the number of people coming to the hospital without stopping those emergencies coming through. So it was, I mean, it was, it's been gradual, but there's been a lot of progress made. But I'd say the biggest change started happening when the lockdown um, started. And I think people were, were beginning to realize that this is something that we need to take very seriously.
And what what was what is your kind of daily um, routine? What kind of precautions do you take personally? Just to kind of give context to people that you know, there's there's a lot of complaints about kind of the mask wearing and and it's a bit sounds a bit like they're whining a bit too much. So just to give context to people, what what do you doctors go through to kind of prepare for the day? Sure. So what we go through has changed um, very drastically from the beginning of the year to now, and it's still changing. Basically, we have um, protocol that gets implemented every so often by the infectious disease specialists, and they recommend what level of protection we should be taking based on the level of infection and what's going on within the country. So initially, you know, good hand hygiene, which doctors should be practicing anyways, was sufficient when, you know, we first heard of um, COVID and things were starting out, then it was really just, okay, now be extra cautious with your hand hygiene. And then they rolled in, you know, okay, now every healthcare worker needs to be wearing a mask. And that kind of started a bit before the public was expected to wear a mask. We were now being expected to wear masks everywhere around the hospital. Um, And then as the cases kind of grew and as the risk kind of grew and we started seeing cases um, at our own hospital and um, that sort of thing, then, you know, the sort of protection we wear grew beyond that. And now we're expected to wear on a daily basis uh, face visors, so like a kind of a face shield, um, a mask, and then obviously continue to practice hand hygiene as thoroughly as possible. So those are the precautions for now. It also depends on the procedures you're performing, if you're in a COVID or non-COVID ward. But bare minimum, if you're treating non-COVID patients, walking around the hospital, you need a face mask and a, a visor or a shield. And, and you mentioned that, um, you know, obviously with COVID being uh, a problem, you, you don't forget about everyone else. You know, there's still uh, the regular kind of health issues coming in. What has been the, have you seen a drop in the amount of people coming in? Do you think maybe that just because people are scared to come in, maybe they do have an issue? Has there been kind of a drop in in, in um, traffic? Sure. So we definitely saw that in the beginning. I mean, when um, Sir Ramaphosa announced the the lockdown and all of that, we saw a drastic decrease in the number of people coming to hospital, which to a degree surprised me because surely you can't stop yourself from having a stroke or, you know, certain things like that. So I I always found that very fascinating that um, somehow the numbers dropped so drastically in the first couple of weeks because, you know, you would think that these medical emergencies, you can't really stop from happening. So why now, because there's COVID, are, are there less people coming in? But definitely, we definitely did see um, a massive drop in the early days, particularly surgical patients. But our biggest concern at that point was how late are they going to present later? So you have the person who has a cough, who has a fever, who doesn't have COVID, but who possibly has something like TB, who's not going to come in earlier, who's going to leave it and leave it and leave it. And then they're going to come in not just with TB in the lungs, but TB all over, advanced TB or, you know, people who've had strokes at home that haven't come for rehabilitation. So they come with like advanced level disease. So that was the original concern. And that's definitely what we were seeing in the early days. Now, currently, we're seeing 
a reverse. There's a massive, massive influx of patients to the hospital. So whether they were staying away originally because they weren't sure if they could come out of their houses, whether they were staying away out of fear because of COVID, I'm not sure. But we also cancelled a lot of our um, elective things. So we weren't allowing patients to come in for non-urgent surgeries. Um, those were being all pushed back. So that also decreased our numbers. Um, but as to whether or why people weren't coming in the beginning, I'm not entirely sure, but we definitely did see a decrease in numbers, which I thought was surprising for the reasons that I mentioned before. But now it's just a complete, the complete opposite. Now the numbers have definitely gone back to normal, if not higher than before. So, Would you say um, there's obviously a lot of... Uh, talk about the when alcohol was um, put back on sale is that kind of what you've seen from your experience that there was a bit of an an influx of patients regarding um, alcohol um, right so I never um, worked in trauma myself um, but the trauma department at Chris Hani Barra if anyone if you speak to anyone who has worked there is something I mean we have people coming all over the world Germany, China, USA, all different countries to come work in the trauma department at Barra because of the experience you get there. And looking at the trauma department before lockdown, it was, you know, your usual um, busy days at Barra. You expected the trauma department to be busy on the weekend. And then lockdown happened and the ban of alcohol and um, cigarettes and people weren't allowed to go out. And trauma was dead quiet. I mean there was nothing for them to do. We had nursing staff actually playing songs and dancing because there was nothing to do in the trauma pit. Like it reached that stage. And then there was a definite, definite spike again after um, the the alcohol ban and, and the sale of alcohol was lifted. So I think from a trauma perspective, that's very relevant and pertinent. Um, the sale of alcohol, definitely, definitely impacts um, the number of people coming into our trauma department. But for other departments, it really hasn't changed anything. But yeah, from a trauma perspective, it's, it's, you can definitely see the, the stark in, like, increase in numbers related to alcohol sales. Yeah, I think that's kind of been one of the, the main topics of the news lately. Um, what has, or what are your opinions on kind of the way... Um, you know, South Africa's handling it from, from a medical practitioner. Uh, do you feel kind of like we are doing quite well? Or, you know, because obviously everyone has their opinion and due to social media, you can then broadcast your opinion to a wide audience. Um, yeah. what, what are your thoughts on kind of the way the, the, me the medical field is handling the, the situation? So I think the medical field are doing everything that they can as far as being on the ground goes. You know, we are limited by a limitation in resources. So if I look at or if I talk about how I think South Africa handled it, you know, from a government point of view, yeah. creating the lockdown very early was a very good decision. Very, I think it was very wise and it did flatten the curve exactly like um, was pre uh, predicted and that was the whole 
aim of that. So I think initial in the initial stages, government did really well. And we all like, you know, patted them on the back and said, well done, that's great. You flattened yeah. the curve and all that's great. And, you know, they did put a lot of effort into acquiring ventilators and at our own hospital, they definitely put a lot of effort into um, creating infrastructure for COVID patients, separating the wards, getting ventilators in. But again, that's all limited by staff issues as well. We can purchase as many ventilators as we want. We can open up an entire new hospital if we wanted, if we had the resources and the funds. We could put in a million more plug points in order to hook patients up to machines. The main problem is you know, manpower. Um, we can't rush people in their medical degrees. We can't fast forward nurses and allied healthcare professionals through their, their training to become competent in time for the spike of um, COVID-19. And I think that's where, you know, it's very difficult um, because I think the medical professionals are doing everything they can um, and they're handling things well with what they have. So it's kind of like everyone's doing the best with with what they have. Um, so yeah, from from the government and from the medical professionals' point of view, I think you know everyone's doing what they can, um, and whether that's enough or not remains to be seen. But then, from a general population South African point of view, I think there are people who are doing their part, wearing their masks um, when they go out, social distancing, adhering to what the government has. Um, suggested and what healthcare professionals have advised. But then there's a large proportion of um, people, I think, who who don't adhere to those, those things. And it's disappointing because you need buy-in from, from everyone. Um, and I actually had a professor from WITS say, in order to not catch COVID, you need to wash your own hands but you need everyone else to wash their hands as well. And that's the difficulty. Like the medical profession can do as much as they want. They can work themselves into complete burnout, which I think many of them are doing. But if we don't have, you know, resources um, and if we don't have buy-in from the general population with them implementing basic things like hand hygiene, social distancing, we're never going to win this fight, you know, there's just not enough of us and there's just not enough we can do from our side. Um, we need, unfortunately, we need buy-in from everyone and that's not always what's happening. Yeah, I actually found um, just going out to certain areas um, and it's not kind of to say, you know, because the way the reports have kind of covered it is like, um, you know, in the townships, it's like there's no lockdown, but I've been in, very well built up areas as well recently and it's kind of the same thing so it's just like um like you say we just need buy-in from everyone and i think um yeah we can only hope that everyone takes it as seriously as seriously as it is what what is the current um morale around you know the the medical space um obviously burnout is a massive thing and manpower as you say um, what's kind of the, the, the morale of the, the staff at Chris Hani to be specific? Um, so I think that it depends on which department you're working in because, you know, 
COVID-19 is what we'd call like a medical issue. It's not really surgical. So um, if we take a look at different specialities, the morale is obviously different throughout um, the different departments of, of, you know, the hospital. Hospital, yeah. So having spoken to, you know, or having just left, because as an intern, you rotate through different specialities and... We just came out of internal medicine, which is obviously the main department dealing with COVID. And I could definitely say that the morale is quite low, Um, especially speaking to people that are working within the COVID wards. It's difficult because you feel very helpless. Um, This is also a disease that we don't have a cure for. We can only treat symptoms and, you know, if you get better, you get better. And if you don't, we can throw certain medications and um, oxygen or intubate and ventilate patients. But again, there's no like definitive cure for for COVID-19 as of yet. So I think morale for, if I could speak generally, is quite low. Um, People are burnt out, they're overworked, they're stressed because, you know, you have the, you wonder if you've got a sore throat or a cough. Do I have COVID now? Um, Am I an asymptomatic carrier who's giving it to my family? Am I giving it to other patients? Um, So that's also a concern. And then just also having greater patient loads, because if you're COVID exposed or COVID positive as a healthcare professional, you, you can't work. And with less people, you know, the other people that are left have to take on higher patient loads, have to do longer calls or calls more frequently. So I think it's it's definitely um, worry worrisome because I think many people are close to, if not at the level of burnout. And there's just, I think, in certain departments, a sense of hopelessness. But that's obviously a, a very big generalization. We have great staff working at the hospital who remain optimistic, who, um, you know, keep our spirits up, who are still enthusiastic, still coming to work every day, ready to see patients, help people. So just because um, people are becoming maybe perhaps a bit despondent doesn't mean that the healthcare profession has given up. You know, everyone still comes to work every day and we try our best with what we have um, and we give give what we have to give. And yeah, for now, it seems to be holding up, but we'll see in the future. With the current um, kind of spike, especially in Gauteng, has this come as kind of a bit of a surprise to you personally, like your personal opinion? Is this a bit of a shock? Um, No. <laughs> I think, oh, I personally, speaking for myself, I always knew that the spike would come eventually. It was just... It was a matter of when, not if. And with that being in Gauteng, we are the most densely populated province. So it would make sense that we carry the the burden of disease most highly in the country. And um, yeah, I wasn't surprised um, that there was a spike and that it happened mainly in Gauteng at all. I definitely saw that coming. It was just, like I said, a question of you didn't know when it was coming. And I think that prediction said that the spike would happen in September. So it's happening a bit earlier than was originally predicted. But before lockdown, before everything happened, I actually thought that things would be worse earlier on. So that has surprised me that we've managed to push back 
the the time at which the spike occurred so much. And I think that's like something we can praise about the way governments and our healthcare system reacted is that the further back we pushed the spike, um, the more time we have to prepare. And that was the whole purpose of the level five lockdown to begin with. We were never going to eliminate coronavirus by staying at home um, and staying at home for five weeks. It was purely there to prepare the healthcare um, profession so that when we do see the spike, like we're seeing now, um, we're able to deal with it better than we would have if the spike was earlier. What's the, And what would you say is the current um, kind of situation at Chris Harney regarding um, the, the COVID wards? Is it um, quite packed? Um, are there not that many patients? Because there's a there's a a kind of a growing um, consensus amongst the public to kind of say that you know we did all this lockdown and you know the hospitals aren't even full and they have this kind of perception that things aren't you know serious. So yeah, um, I'm just curious to to find out what it's like inside the the COVID wards in, in at Chris Arney. Sure. So um, it's very difficult for me to comment on that because. Um, COVID is kept quite separate from the rest of the hospital and they're pulling the more experienced um, physicians into COVID because a lot of the times if you're, if you've got COVID and you're mild, you can manage at home, you know, you can treat yourself at home. But the patients who are admitted with COVID or who require admission are generally very, very sick and they require um, quite experienced doctors to to treat them. So they haven't been pulling interns into the COVID circuit as of yet. So what goes on in the COVID circuit is very separate to the rest of Barra and we aren't really informed on what's happening in those wards um, and whether, yeah, how many patients there are or not there. But um, they have been expanding the number of wards allocated for COVID. So I'm assuming that that means the current wards that they have are full. And looking at the emergency department, which is like our casualty before patients can go down to the wards. I mean, it is packed. People are in there like sardines. It's actually ridiculous. I mean, there's no chance for social distancing in a in a circumstances like that. So based on that, I mean, I think we can conclude that the COVID wards and the other wards are very full and almost at capacity. And also often a time I've been on call and they've placed Barra on divert, which basically means that you can't bring more patients into the hospital because we're at capacity. So, I mean, without knowing for sure and without being able to comment definitively on what the the actual numbers are within the COVID wards, um, I think just from that you can deduce that the hospitals are struggling with beds. And, you know, beds for COVID patients and beds for non-COVID patients, both of them um, were running out. And we're talking about the third largest hospital in the world running out of bed space. It's like, you know, it is crazy. Um, With, I mean, your exposure and kind of being in um, a hospital, like you say, the third largest hospital in the world, has this kind of um, increased your general, like, um, I don't want to say fear, but I mean, this is kind of scary. Um, 
you know, what, what can you say to the public just based on what you've seen? Obviously, you're not really that involved in that, but just kind of the way the, 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 the medical practitioners are handling everything, it's quite, it's quite serious. Yeah, I think um, what the public needs is to understand the gravity of the situation without panicking. And that's like a very difficult thing to do is to try get, you know, a population to understand how serious a, a certain illness is without panicking about it. And we definitely saw that in the early days with people rushing to shops and hoarding toilet paper and, you know, the hand sanitizer and masks all being sold out because people were just buying in such bulk and stuff. And I think um, that's definitely what we saw in, in the beginning, you know, people panicking. But now it seem, that seems to have, you know, tapered off a bit. And I, I don't know if people are taking it as seriously as they should. But it's also tricky um, from, you know... A healthcare point of view to try and get people to take something seriously without freaking them out. Um, so I think my advice would be to the public to not panic, but also to, you know, adhere to what, what advice has been given. I mean, medical professionals and government don't speak for their own health. They what they're saying has value and I think people as frustrated as they might be should listen to what they're being told you know um but yeah and I think a lot of a lot of people think well I'm young I'm fairly fit I'm healthy if I catch this it'll be like just a little cold and I'll get over it which for the majority of people it it probably will be and that is generally the case people get very mild forms of of coronavirus but you also don't know I mean, who you're giving it to and who they're giving it to, it, it could, you know, end up being the reason that someone else unfortunately passes away. And that could be an di indirect result of you not washing your hands and going to a party and giving it to someone who then gave it to someone who was immunocompromised and passes away. So it's not a time for selfishness. It's not a time for panic. It's a time for us to kind of unite and, you know take the necessary precautions and take things seriously. And if people are unwilling to take it seriously, all they need to do is take a look at what happened in certain countries, especially Italy and Spain, um, when, the break, when the breakouts were really, really bad and people weren't necessarily prepared for it. I mean, if those statistics and what happened in those countries isn't enough to scare someone, then yeah. I don't know what, what more we can say for people to take it seriously. And I, I suppose on the flip side, you, you know, you still quite, this is, you're new into the, the medical world. You just qualified as a doctor now. Do you think on the flip side of everything, um, this will kind of make our healthcare system stronger dealing with this? Um, there, there is something to kind of look you know, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Is that something that you'd say? Um, I think there there will be light at the end of the tunnel, but that light is very far away. And, you know, this is a marathon, it's not a sprint. And we, we're, a f we're far away from the end of the tunnel, um, if I can say that. So I think that it will bring about changes to our healthcare system. I think it's especially highlighting the gap between 
public and private healthcare because before, if you could afford medical aid, if you could afford a ventilator, um, then sure, you would be ventilated no matter how old you were, um, no matter what your comorbid conditions were. If you could afford, you know, those procedures, doctors in private would do it for you. But in public health care, you have to qualify for a lot of things. There's criteria for dialysis. There's criteria for ICU. There's criteria for ventilation. And often, um, health care professionals have to choose one person over another um, who gets the ventilator, who gets dialysis on, based on these criteria. And that's kind of something that our public health care hasn't really seen. But now we're coming to a point where Unfortunately, you can have as much money as you want. If there's no ventilator for you, there's no ventilator. And that's what we're going to start seeing. And I think those people, it will open up the eyes to a lot of people who who have been receiving private health care their whole lives and who aren't necessarily aware of um, some of the, the states of some of our public hospitals. Um, and, I, you know, everyone's on a level playing field now. So I think it's already changing our health care system. Um, and yeah, we'll see in the future, but it's definitely, it's definitely going to make some changes for sure. Thanks so much for, for making time. Is there anything kind of that you want to just, um, close up on, you know, certain things we can, I don't even know really what to say. Cause it's, it's such a, for me personally, I feel, um, I feel scared, but cautious, um, to an extent because I stay with my grandparents it's just like, it's such a, a, a crazy thing. Um, and yeah, just to see people not taking it seriously is quite worrying. It's obviously now forced certain businesses to close just because of, you know, not everyone, um, everyone's not kind of doing their part. And, you know, you, like you say, you don't want to be at um, the fault of someone else's passing or uh, illness. So is there anything you just want to close off on that uh, we can kind of just take and hopefully improve on? Sure. So I think that, you know, we should all just take it one day at a time. This will end. There will be a day where we can all go out and, and live a life like we used to. But for now, we just need to, you know, um, buckle down and do what needs to be done to help help everyone else. I'm hoping that, you know, we'll emerge from this like a more united nation but time will tell. And yeah, I think my biggest message would be to people not to panic, um, but just to be, you know, cautious, like you said, and take the necessary precautions and um, yeah, stay safe. And, you know, we'll get through this. But for now, it's just we are, I don't think we've seen our worst days yet, um, but we will get through and we just need, you know, people to stay strong. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks so much, Jamie. Cool. Pleasure. Thank you for having me and for thinking of me for this podcast. I appreciate it. No worries. Thanks, guys, for listening. Just want to say a quick um, thank you to the healthcare system for all that they're doing for us during this uncertain time. I think uh, as the public, we can you know follow the basic guidelines, wear a mask, stay at home whenever you can. And you know, just follow the guidelines that have been set out by the authorities. And I think uh, we can uh, get through this.